you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, which I believe is page 685 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please uh, take that as a gift. Merry Christmas for you. Well, while you're turning there, I want to make a brief comment about uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Um... I want to put it in context, in, and sometimes it's good to show something, and sometimes it's good to kind of give a plug, and sometimes it's good just to talk about it. So hopefully just to impress it on your hearts. Our church is a very giving church, uh, very missions giving. So we're giving in missions work uh, about $100,000 this year. And then connected to that, uh, we have two annual regular offerings we draw, the Light of Moon Christmas offering and the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And I just I want to place that into context because we don't do Lottie Moon as a way of uh, getting you to give so that we can give missionally. We give very missionally. We're, we're uh, it's a big part of of the way our church thinks. We have an entire team that prayerfully considers how to give. The reason we do the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is it's it's the best way and it's the time that we set aside in the life of our church to give in a way that goes directly to international missions because. Um, you know, there are churches on the blocks of this town and in our city and in this country and on the East Coast, but um, we are mindful that maybe in Cameroon, no one has brought the name of Jesus Christ uh, to some areas, or maybe in Niger or China or Mongolia. And so we do uh, Lottie Moon to reach them. And so in the grand scheme of things, if, if you are encouraged about Lottie Moon or you're just trying to understand how does it fit, it's not the only way we give, but it is the best way we give that reaches uh, all of the nations outside of our country. So I just want to encourage you there as you, you prayerfully consider your giving this morning. Okay. Well, we are beginning a new series. Uh, it's a short one, right around Christmas uh, and and through Christmas Eve. And we're in Matthew 1 this morning, uh, confronted immediately by a genealogy, which I find challenging. I think it's challenging uh, for us as um, Americans because I think when we arrive at lists, we assume it's data. That's the way our mind gets. And so um, many of you, looking at page 1 of the New Testament, uh, are confronted almost with boredom. Like, are we really going to do this? We are. We'll do this together. Um, because, but the reason I think we look at it and deal with the tediousness of it is because we see it as information, as data. But it's not really that. And that's what I want to show you this morning. It's Matthew is not, when he writes this down, just think of it this way. Matthew's trying to think, how do I start the story of Jesus? I don't think he would purposely start it boring. Because he's not. He's not doing that. So we look at lists sometimes and we see data. Processing data. But that's not at all what Matthew's going to do. I want to give you an example, a, a modern day example of a time when, when you could approach a, name, a list of names and not see data. If you go to Washington, D.C., there is in the mall um, a wall of black granite. Um, it's like a scar in the earth of America. It's a wound 
in our nation's capital, and we call that wound the Vietnam Memorial. And on that memorial, there are about 58,000 names. It's a long list of names, but you know and I know it is not data. If you ever go there and you silently sit and watch, the people who go and kneel at that wall, they're not learning information. Right? They're communing with a story. They're remembering something that, that is, they're remembering something they're both remembering and trying to forget. They're going somewhere to re-experience and, and be with someone who can't be there anymore. And you can't help but go to that wall and not be touched. It is so subtle and so painful and so beautiful, and it is nothing but a list of names. But any American, especially those of you who, who remember the scar on our nation's history, any American who has any partnership that knows it's not a list of names, right? It's so much more. And that's what this is this morning. This is a memorial that Matthew is writing to a people that wonder, has God forgotten us? This is his own sort of long black wall uh, in their history. And so that's how I want to encourage you to approach it this morning is I don't want you to walk out of here thinking I need to memorize the list of names. What I want you to do is realize we're not coming to data, we're coming to a work of art. We're coming to the way God chose to start the New Testament, which is really special. This is page one of a new message. Right? Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning as we, as we seek the truth in your word. Lord, we, we understand that the words on this page, devoid of your spirit, will fall flat in our heart. So we invite your spirit to uh, work and, and move in us in the way that you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to spend part of the morning uh, building um, a sense of expectation that people, the people of the time would, would have if they saw this. And I want to spend part of the morning demonstrating by the list that he's really not trying to teach us anything. Okay? And then, and then we'll kind of close both of those together. So if you look here in the first verse, and you've already, heard, you've already had the reading of it, so we're not going to read through the whole thing again. I don't know if I can get the names correct twice. So uh, you only got one of those. But uh, I do want us to look at verse 1. And verse 1 says this. This is the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So one thing I want to ask right off the bat is that you, in your mind, would try to separate the name Jesus from the word Christ. Separate the two of them a little bit. Because I think, if you're like me, Christ is, turns into Jesus' last name. Which it's not his last name. It's a title. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. It's a, name, it's a word or a title that only goes next to one person's name in the history of humanity, at least in regards to this story. Jesus is the Messiah. And sometimes when we, we say them close together, right, they deserve to be close together, and we say them, but sometimes repetition and familiarity can reduce the value of a name 
This is Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one. The idea that Matthew's starting with is, he's saying to the reader, I'm going to tell you the genealogy, the origin is a better word even, the origin of the man named Jesus who is your Messiah. That's what he's saying. And then he connects it to two people, to David, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Because to any Hebrew, the, the, the promises, and we'll look at these in a second, the promises God gave to Abraham and to David were central to what it meant to be Jewish. Those promises lived in the center of the Jewish hope. Let me show you a few of them real quick. In Genesis 12, and, and they'll be up behind you, and I've highlighted some of the more important ideas, and, and there'll be several of them. But in Genesis 12, you see it here. You see that the Lord comes to Abraham, and he says, I will make you a great nation. And then he says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is before Abraham had ever done anything for the Lord. So the Lord comes to Abraham. Abraham is not even living in modern-day Israel right now. He's far north out towards the Nineveh, a Syria place, though it's not really a place at this point. And he says, Abraham, I want you to go, leave your country, your people, and your family's household and go to the place that I will show you. And then he gives him this promise. And this is what I will do for you. I'll make you a nation. I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise given to Abraham. It's a promise given. In Genesis 17, the Lord revisits Abraham and he revisits this promise and he adds on to it. So in addition to the things said earlier, you'll see other things. He begins to edify them. He says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He says, I'll make you into a nation and kings will come out of you. I promise you an everlasting covenant. So I'm going to make you into a nation and that promise of mine will endure forever. I will never expire of my responsibility to bless you. Isn't that great? Imagine to be the man to hear that from the mouth of God. I will bless you in an everlasting way. Well, we have been, haven't we? Even the land, he says, in the land I give you will be an everlasting possession. Once again, in Genesis 22, the Lord revisits Moses and he says not just the promise, but he begins to add to it. And you hear in Genesis 22, you see this thing, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the sky or as the sand of the seashore. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is the promise God gave to Abraham. And that is central in the minds of the Hebrew people. They were sons of Abraham. And, and this is why they have eternally been connected to that land. Longing for that land is because of, of the promises made through by God to Abraham. This is why there's a strong sense that they're God's people and there's blessing. It was, it was and remains a central idea in what it means to be Jewish. Well, time went on, actually about 800, 900 years went on, and King David came around, 
and God visited David and gave another promise. Now in the middle, there's Moses, right? But the promises given to Moses were given in a reciprocal way, a covenantal way of if you do follow my rules, then I will bless you. The beauty of what came to Abraham was the Lord simply said, I'm gonna do it. Likewise, the Lord comes to David eight or 900 years later and says something very similar in 2 Samuel 7. Look at some of the things he says. I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. That's just eloquent. I will appoint a place for my Israel and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed. The Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house, he says. And he will raise up your offspring after you, he writes. God says, I will establish his kingdom. Do you see what ends up happening is the promises of Abraham are that God would bless the people through Abraham, God would bless the world through Abraham, that they would be given a land and their possessions and that that would endure forever. But when the Lord comes to David now, it's not simply that there'll be, you'll be able to rest within your borders. Now the promise is, and I will raise up for you a person, an actual person who will reign over you. I will be to him a father and he to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was central to the Jewish identity. The promises to Abraham and the promises to David are at the center of what it means to be Jewish. And Matthew starts his book with, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he heads into the text. So what I want us to do is briefly as we walk through two through, we'll walk through these three sections. I want us to do that with, with this in mind that Matthew's leading the whole conversation with the idea of a Messiah and the promises of Abraham and David that have been given to the Jewish people. And then if you look here in verse two, you see a list of people. From Abraham to verse six where he arrives at David the king. Now I'll confess, I want to look at this. Even, even already this week my starting point was that this was uh, what you might call an apologetic effort of Matthew. That Matthew was trying to demonstrate categorically that Jesus is, is of David. I have, uh, I, I have since repented of that. I don't think this is an apologetic at all. In fact, I would say it this way. If, if Matthew is trying to demonstrate that Jesus is related to the promises of David, this is superfluous information. It's not even necessary. For one, nobody's questioning this. None of the Jewish people, there's not a Jew on earth who believes in God who questions whether David came from Abraham. So Matthew is giving us unnecessary information. If he's, let me say it this way, if his goal is to give you data, to categorically convince you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, this is unnecessary. We all know this. No, none of the Jews were questioning this. 
It's so well documented. The Hebrew people were so meticulous at documenting their lineage and their genealogies. This was common knowledge. Almost every one of these names is in the scriptures even. I mean, you could, you could build this table. So it's my sense that Matthew is not trying to, to display intense research so that we might believe. He's writing to a Jewish audience who already knows this, and he's just conjuring up their memory. That's what he's doing. Another reason, or another reason to make you pause as far as this being a, a list or just information is the twists and turns that he takes as he describes from verse 2 through 6. There's a few twists. Look, there's a rhythm he'll build. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so and the father of so-and-so. That, that, that rhythm is, is pretty intrinsic in the whole list. It's the father of Perez, the father of this. But there's a few times that he changes up the rhythm. Look in verse 2. It says, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. There's an addition there. Right? And who are the brothers of Judah? They're the tribes of Israel. So there's this notion as Matthew's describing Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. When he gets to Jacob and he gets to Judah, if he was really simply trying to prove the lineage of Christ, he would just keep going. But here he's saying to the reader, Judah, oh, and remember Judah had a whole bunch of brothers of which you, many of you belong. He, this is a moment where he just pauses for a second and opens up the arms, almost as though to put in the mind of the reader a bigger story. The same thing happens in verse 3 when he says that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why did he do that? That's an embarrassing story. It's a shameful story for the Hebrew people where Judah acted poorly. You'd think if he was trying to glorify the line of Jesus, you wouldn't do that. It almost seems testimonial. You know, you, know uh, you really can tell sometimes when a person comes to Jesus, it's because the things they'd never talk about before, they're willing to talk about now because of what God's done in their life. So something that would have been shameful, if they were going to give you their bio before Christ, they would have totally left out. Now, because God's entered into their life and has done things for them, they make sure they drop it with you because it's a pivotal point where God has done something. That's what Tamar is in, to me in this book. It's a place where Matthew's not ashamed because it's a place where even though Judah failed, God didn't. It's a place of, despite the fact that God was trying to do something through the line of men, even when they were misbehaving or not fulfilling their responsibility, God was watching. God was watching, and he took care of it. There's a few other turns. Look in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. That's the Rahab of Jericho, we believe. The harlot, the prostitute. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. That's the Ruth of Scripture. And so here in this, in this text, if it was given to us to be informational, first of all, I would say, well, then it's redundant and it's superfluous. We don't even need it. 
But if it was still trying to be informational, and if it was trying to build up the pedigree of Christ, I would say, well, man, Matthew pulled out some of the places that don't give Jesus the best pedigree. We're reminded of the sin of Judah. We're reminded of the the reliance of the Hebrew people on the prostitute of the pagan nation they were destroying. All three of these women, by the way, are almost certainly Gentiles. And so we're thirdly reminded that the Jewish line and pedigree of Christ has been polluted or populated or graciously included with the Gentiles. It just doesn't feel like data to me. It feels like a story. It feels like the people who were familiar would arrive at Matthew's writing and be, oh, yeah, I remember that. Then we get to David, right? Verses 7, 7 all the way through 11. And look how he starts. I just want to show you the start here. Once again, I just think, first for one, I would say this entire section, once again, is superfluous from the perspective of demonstrating Jesus's descent. If you really wanted to demonstrate his descent, his actual genealogical pedigree, you would start with Jesus and you'd work backwards. Because nobody, everybody knows from Abraham all the way down into the exile. The question is, how does Jesus, which by the way is how Luke does it. Luke, who I actually think is giving the genealogical background of, of Jesus, starts at Jesus and works backwards and gives many more names. doesn't seem that Matthew's that concerned about it. And he certainly doesn't seem concerned to be maintaining the human reputations that we might expect. Look at this. Look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 6. It says, And David was the father of Solomon. These next four or five words are so key. Look at this. By the wife of Uriah. What does that tell you? Let me just think of so many different ways you could say it. It could be, and David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of so-and-so. Okay, that would be, there's nothing to see here. Okay? Or it could be, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Okay? But it isn't either of those. It's David is the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, right? I mean, the, David is one of the, the few apexes of Hebrew expectation and hope. The promise comes to him, and when Matthew puts him in the genealogy, he puts him in beside the phrase, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Matthew will not let you process the name of David without dealing with the fact that he stole the sheep. Right? I mean, remember the prophecy that he stole this wife and murdered this husband. This huge promise of what God's going to do. And then he starts the epic of the kings, right? David is the epic of the kings. And he starts the epic of the king with, here's David, your great David. Oh, by the way, he was a murderer and an adulterer. And then from there, he begins to list the kings. And from the kings, the general trend is a downward spiral of expectation. If you were a Jew and your hope was that God was going to establish an everlasting throne through the line of David and you were living 
through the hundreds and hundreds of years of this history, your hope would be slowly squelched. Every king after, well, for the most part, the general, there's a general decline of the kings after David, and they get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse. And so instead of turning to the Lord, they begin to turn away from the Lord. And after a while, instead of turning away from the Lord, they're turning against the Lord. There's a period of time in the kings where God could work through the kings to do his will. By the end, he's sending prophets to prophesy against the kings. It's an epic of Jewish history that starts with this great promise and ends with absolute abject defeat. And that's what you see here. And then I think if you'd look in verses 12 to 16, what we would begin to notice is, for one, the familiarity of these people goes way down. I think even if your, if your hobby is Bible, you don't know these guys. Actually, most of them are not in Scripture. Matthew's probably gleaning them from many of their, their libraries. But I think this time is, is uh, this period from 12 through 16, this epic is denoted by the theme of silence. This is a period where even the prophets wane out of the language of the Hebrew people. If you look at the last page of the New Te- Old Testament, if you just go one page over, there's 400 and some years between Malachi 4 verse 6 and Matthew 1 verse 1. It's 400 years of silence. The last thing Malachi says is that Elijah will come and announce the Messiah. Silence. Until Matthew, when the Messiah comes, and the story here is shortly followed by John the Baptist, who's called Elijah. But it's a period. It's a period where all of the promises that God gave to Abraham and to David were... uh, would have felt unfulfilled. Let me say it that way. Would have felt like, what, is, what went wrong? God said he'd give them a land, but he pulled them into deportation. God said there'd be peace on their borders, but even when they get back, they're never sovereign again. They're never, ever sovereign again. So that even at the time of the advent of Christ, they're beneath the, the iron fist of the Roman Empire. God said they would have a king, an enduring kingdom, but they don't really have a kingdom. I mean, Zerubbabel and Abiah, these are stand-ins. These are governors. They're, yeah, they're of the bloodline, but they're not sovereign kings. At the most, they're a, they're a puppet. And by the time that Jesus is alive, it isn't as though they even have a Jewish king. So Herod the Great is not even a real Jew, nor is he even a real king. It's Caesar who's king. And so there's just layer after layer of silence and confusion and a sense of what God said he would do sure doesn't feel like it's been done. And at last, in verse 16, he arrives at Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, I think... 
that the people that Matthew had in mind when he wrote this was pretty familiar with these names and pretty familiar with this history. He's putting the history out there because he's, the idea is, right, you had this hope of promise through Abraham and through David, and then this idea of promise was disrupted by the deportation and the failure, but at last we are at Christ. Christ is that man and his kingdom is that hope. And he ends it with this way. He, he says this strange sentence. At least it's strange if you like to do math. He says, so the generations from Abraham to David, this is verse 17, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now that, man, that sounds elegant. It would be great if it were true. Now, I want you to say, I believe that Matthew is true and inerrant. The scriptures are inerrant. What I'm saying is, is Matthew is not giving you data because there's way more than 14 generations in these places. Luke himself exposes them when he does the genealogy. Matthew is choosing to present an elegant image of history. Think of it this way. If, if the Jews w- were on their P's and Q's about genealogy, which they were, in fact, King Herod the Great was so frustrated with the Jews about their genealogy and the kings that he burned down the genealogies in the libraries. He ordered them destroyed because of what a nuisance they were about it all. So if the Jews are on their P's and Q's about their genealogy, which they were, do you think that Matthew would start the beginning of the New Testament with obvious error? Obvious error. I mean, there are errors here that you, errors, there are omissions, intentional omissions, let me say it that way, that you, a reader 2,000 years later could point out. There's entire kings of which there's chapters written about in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles that don't show up here in the Kings. Because Matthew is uninterested. He's not interested in giving you data. He's interested in showing you something. And so there's this elegance, okay? There's an elegance of 14 generations to 14 generations to 14 generations. And the Hebrew people had a deep appreciation for that kind of numerical elegance, right? Seven is a special number. 14 is two sevens. Even if you look, even the Jews had an appreciation for the number values of letters. And so they, it was not past them to see that the name David, okay, equaled the number 14. They knew that. D is four, V is six. D, it's not D and V, but they're characters, right? It equals 14, and he's the 14th name in the list of sets of 14. There's, it's a beautiful, to the Hebrew eyes, this is a beautiful construct. It's, it is an oil painting of their history. That's what it is. It's not data, There's 900 years between Abraham and David. There's almost certainly more than 14 generations there. There's more than 14 kings from David to Jeconiah. What Matthew has done, he's arranged the table in such a way, the listing in such a way as to say, what God said he was going to be doing 
has been done in perfect time. When you read this, at the end, verse 17, this conclusion, he says, so there's 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the deportation and 14 from the deportation to Christ. It's his way of saying, you think something's wrong because of all the silence. God is perfect in the way he fulfills his word. This is what's been saying. God is doing it exquisitely. That's Matthew's attitude is this has been done with sovereign perfection. He wasn't late. He wasn't early. He was elegantly on time in the way he's done everything. That the silence from the deportation all the way to the time of Christ has not been a mistake. God hasn't failed. He's right. He's doing exactly what he did. In the perfection of time, Jesus Christ has come. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you an, an example from a different perspective. When I was learning to fly, we would do a lot of low levels. And the way you knew you were too low is your instructors would teach you that cows have legs and cars have wheels. So they would say to you, you know you're getting low when cows have legs and cars have We were in Mississippi. Cows have legs and cars have wheels. That's how you knew you were low. And you'd climb up until cows no longer had legs. Um... When I got into my, my, my follow-on airframe, we flew a lot lower than that. So we'd go down about 300 feet. And so cows always had legs. But we learned a different... My standard was, I fly until the world gets trashy. What I'm going to say is, in Alaska, at 500 feet, everybody's yard looks nice. But at 200 feet, you realize it's trashy 50-gallon can of garbage and a blue tarp. Even a junkyard at 500 feet looks geometric to you and sparkly. But at 200 feet, it looks junky. It looks junky. There's this notion that the higher you get, when you get so high, everything just sets in order. You see it, it's just beautiful. I think this is what Matthew's doing. In the living out of life, the Jews living their life at 100 feet, it's trashy, it's confusing, they don't know what's going on. Do we still expect the Lord? Was the prophecy fulfilled? Is it going to happen? What is it going to be like? Right? It's Matthew's saying, that's too low. You can't see the story that low. And he backs up and he says, just back up a little bit higher. Look, it's perfect. This is God. It's like when we climb away from life, way down low, life seems to be dictated by choice and will. And it's just true, right? Choice and will are all in here, right? You back really, really far away. You climb up to heaven and you stare down with God and you see sovereignty at work. God's in control and he's going to tell a story. And the story is going to be perfect. And the Messiah will come he will fulfill his promises because he said it by his zealous holy word. He will do it. And he has. And that's what, that's what Matthew's saying. In the perfection of time, in a perfect way, God has brought the perfect man for the people. Just as it was foretold. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, 
We thank you for your word and what you say about yourself in it. Lord, I even think in our own lives, I lift up individual lives here, whose, li- whose very lives may be low enough and messy enough and confused enough that it feels to them like you're silent or that you haven't kept your promises or that you, maybe you've forgotten or you've failed or the story they wanted to have told has failed. Lord, so I pray that with your spirit you can elevate them to see that you are in control. And if they're in you, the story ends so well. Lord, we thank you that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are part of a kingdom that will endure forever. We do worship a king who will be on the throne forever. You have built your house, Lord. Lord, we see in Christ all all the answers and all the fulfillment to the promises of Abraham and David. You have blessed the people and through Christ all the nations of the earth have been blessed. And so Lord, I pray for those who maybe even in this season are in a low space, if you would bring them up, climb them up so that they can see from your vantage point, how you were always on time and how your timing is perfect. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.